Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 21, another episode by popular request. Actually, someone mentioned, uh, when am I going to do the episode on homeschooling? And that one's still in the works. I will get to it. Uh, But this one, uh, somebody sent me a request to talk about the 1896 election. It's not something that you'll often hear. Hey, would you please talk about the 1896 election? Um, In fact, I I think that uh, if you ever asked any mainstream talk show or radio program, you called in and said, hey, um, so-and-so host, what do you think about the 1896 election and the currency and, and, you know, towards our modern 2016 election? I think people would hang up on you right away or at least think, you know, why are you asking this question? Because they probably wouldn't know anything about it. But this actually piggybacks on the episode I just did on progressivism a couple of days ago. And so I'll talk about the 1896 election. It's actually one of the more interesting elections in American history. I'm not sure that it's as applicable to the 2016 election as you might think, though I could say, you know, as I said in the episode on the Gilded Age, that, uh, you know, the Gilded Age does have currency in the modern era. In fact, um, I've often said the Gilded Age is like talking about current events because some of the things that are going on there, whether it's immigration or monetary policy or uh, trade policy, foreign policy, all these things are the same issues we're dealing with now in 2016. And so uh, when, you're, when you're talking about that particular period of time, it's important to really bring that forward and you know, say these issues haven't gone away. Corruption in government was still a big issue in the late 19th century as it is today. So I think it's important to talk about those in relation to modern politics. So let's talk about 1896. So in 1896, you had uh, essentially a three-way race for the presidency, and that's because a third party developed in this period of time, not one that had a lot of uh, impact, but it's an interesting party because of its positions. So the Democrats in 1896 nominated William Jennings Bryan, and uh, this is an interesting development because it was the first time that the Democrats had kind of moved left. Now, Bryan, at this point, was the youngest man ever to be nominated by a major political party. He was only in his mid-30s, and he promised in the 1896 Democrat Party convention that he would return to a position of bimetallism, meaning that they wanted the free coinage of silver. Now, uh, the United States had been on a gold standard, where gold was the only uh, medium that was backing our currency. And so Brian promised that we would go to a position where we had gold and silver backing U.S. currency. 
And he made a very famous speech entitled The Cross of Gold Speech. The imagery was great, where you had this um, image of a, of a farmer nailed to a cross of gold. And of course, at this particular time, you had a high level of uh, religious participation in the American polity. Uh, most people were practicing Christians at this period. And so this was something that was powerful. The farmer was almost a Christ-like symbol nailed to this cross of gold. Now, it's interesting to note that Bryan was supported also by the People's Party, which was the Populist Party. And they had nominated a man named James Weaver in 1892. Weaver was from Iowa. But in 1896, they supported Bryan. Now, a lot of people get confused between what's the difference between populism and progressivism. They are they, they share, at this point, a belief that the general government should do something about reining in industry and big business in America. And they thought that the, the that would be the vehicle to do so, the general government. They would pass legislation, uh, nationalizing certain parts of the economy, uh, creating a, a, a greenback currency where you had more money in circulation. That was the point of silver was to inflate the currency, uh, to get more in circulation. Now, looking back on that now, here we are in 2016, I think anyone who's interested in a stable currency would love to have a currency backed in gold and silver. At the time, it was thought that this this particular policy would lead to inflation, which would uh, be bad for the American worker. And I'll talk about that in a second with one of the, with one of the splinter parties. So uh, these populists thought that the government could alleviate some of the problems that they were facing in the economy. Now, what had happened here is very interesting. Beginning in 1852 with the creation of the Republican Party, you had Western farmers create an alliance with northern industrialists, northeastern industrialists, for two reasons. One, these northeastern industrialists favored federally funded internal improvements, meaning they wanted the general government to build railroads and roads. And western farmers liked this particular idea because it allowed them to have methods of transportation to get their crops to market. So, they wanted to get their crops, say, down the Mississippi River, or they wanted to get them to the east, and they could do so on a railroad. Southern Democrats were not in favor of this because they didn't like the idea of the general government building things that were not constitutionally authorized, and they were correct in that position. But these farmers believed it in the West. They needed these things. This was going a period of what's often called the Transportation Revolution, they believed they needed these roads and railroads and other methods to get their crop to market. So they, they favored these internal improvements. Going all the way back to Henry Clay and the American system. You know, Clay was from Kentucky, and Kentucky at this time was considered a western state back in the, in the uh, middle of the 19th century, early to middle 19th century. And this is why Clay favored this revival of the Hamiltonian economic system. So these farmers were in favor of that. The other reason why is because they did not favor slavery extension in the territories. And the Republican Party, one of their major planks, was no slavery extension. So it wasn't that they were uh, necessarily anti-slavery for the South, but they didn't want slavery in the Western territories because they didn't want competition from slave labor and they didn't want blacks in the Western territories at all. In fact, if you want to read some of the most viciously racist statements in American history, 
go out and read the Republican Party and what they were saying about black Americans in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, they're openly against blacks in general. That's not just slavery. What they didn't want were, were black people living in their states or competing with them for labor. So that was part of the Republican Party. By the 1880s and then into the 1890s, they believed they had cut a raw deal because what was happening now was that this Republican Party was in full, the industrials were in full control of the Republican Party and the farmers felt left out. Now, of course, Southern Democrats were saying, well, we told you so. This is exactly who we're against. These people have been trying to implement, the, the Hamiltonians have been trying to implement this system of uh, a national bank, uh, high tariffs, uh, control of the economy for their own interests, for the industrial interests of the United States, and that's going to hurt farmers in the long run. This was their position from the beginning. Uh, the Jeffersonians had long been saying that the, the real problem in America, you, you had big government and big business. Left separate, they could be dealt with. But if you put them together, if you, put, if you had a fusion of finance, capital, and government, it would create an unholy alliance, a monster that could not be dealt with. So this is what had happened in the middle of the 19th century. You had, a, you had a fusion of government and big business, and it created a problem for farmers, for the agrarian community. You also had southern agrarians who were essentially saying the same thing that they had been saying for the last nearly 100 years, that we don't want this fusion of government and finance. People like Tom Watson of Georgia, who was better known later on uh, for his um, positions on uh, race, but at this particular time, he actually favored an alliance between white and black farmers, southern farmers, to oppose this, uh, this particular program from the Northeast, which he believed was hurting farmers. And, and I think it's interesting the southern position as you move forward, say, in the Woodrow Wilson administration. Southerners were in control of the government at that point. And some of the things that they were doing, whether it was uh, you know, Carter Glass, uh, who, um, who was interested in finance reform, uh, Glass-Steagall, uh, which um, was a banking regulation program. Uh, both of those gentlemen, Glass and Steagall, were from the South. Uh, whether you had uh, the Clayton Antitrust Act, and Henry D. Lamar Clayton was from Alabama, um, you know, whether you had um, the Underwood tariff, uh, Oscar Underwood was also from Alabama. And so what these people were doing is using the same vehicle that had hurt them. I mean, these are people that had said for years, you know, the general government is our enemy. Unconstitutional government is our enemy. But now that they had done is said, okay, you got your unconstitutional government. Now we're going to use the same thing to get you back, Northeastern industrialists. We, we warned about this a long time ago. But now it's our uh, agenda to try to use the same thing that you created against you. And so you saw that quite a bit with the populists. They weren't progressives. Now, I mean, again, they're using the government. The progressives are going to use the government as well. But populists were doing it for a different reason. They wanted to preserve this agrarian tradition. It's more of a conservative position in that they're trying to, cons to conserve what they already had the agrarian lifestyle, whereas progressives are looking to create some type of new model for America. Uh, and you had a lot of progressives in the industrial sector. 
Um, so progressivism and populism are not the same, um, even though they're often seen as the same thing. And so as you move forward in time, of course, you know, Donald Trump today has been called a populist. And his rhetoric is populist in that he's saying, you know, we're, we're for the working class. Uh, we want to help blue-collar Americans. We want to revive an industry in the United States. You could question as to whether industry has really died in the United States. I mean, there's still industry going on. It's not like it was. Uh, we've seen a lot of jobs shipped overseas, uh, a lot of companies setting up shop uh, in South America or over in Asia because of labor. Um, but it's also interesting to note that you know a lot of foreign companies are setting up shop in America because our labor is cheaper than their co- than their labor, say in Europe. Uh, whether it's or, or in Asia, places, you know, what they're looking at also is the economy of, of shipping and, tr- and transportation to get their product, whether it's uh, your Korean automobile manufacturers or German automobile manufacturers or Japanese automobile manufacturers, uh, you know, German steel companies and things like this. They're setting up shop here in the United States because it's easier to get the product they're, they're manufacturing to the United States by building it in the United States. So you are seeing that. Uh, you're not seeing American companies set up shop here. They're often moving out. So you have this really interesting situation uh, developing. Now, of course, textiles, you don't see much textile manufacturing in the United States anymore. Uh, that's all gone overseas. And electronics manufacturing, you don't see much in the United States anymore. Again, that's all gone overseas. Uh, and so this is where the Trump position is, well, we need to build these things in the United States. We need blue-collar jobs for blue-collar Americans, and that's why the white American working class is supporting Trump. I mean, you, I think you're going to see in the 2016 election a lot of white working class Americans uh, support Donald Trump. Traditionally, who had supported Democrats, maybe even you know labor union types, support Donald Trump because the alternative is this globalist economy that people like Hillary Clinton and the establishment Republicans support. We'll see what happens. And I mean, again, from an economic standpoint, you could argue whether Trump is correct or not. Uh, but this is what's going on. And so here in 1896, you had this, this position of American working class people, whether they're farmers or manu- the manufacturing sector, now are front and center. And so when you look at the splinter party that developed off the Democrats, it was called the National Democratic Party, and sometimes they were called the Gold Democrats, and they nominated uh, what, you would, what you would call a Union Confederate ticket. Uh, John Palmer was their uh, was their nominee for president, and he was a former Union general. And then you had uh, Simon Bolivar Buckner, who was the vice presidential nominee, who was a former Confederate general. And so this was a North-South ticket, and they hoped that what they were going to do is pull away all of the traditional conservative Democrats to support them. And one of the interesting things about their platform was that they favored the gold standard. Why? Because they said an American worker deserves a hundred cents pay for every hour that he works. He needs a hundred cents on the dollar, and if you inflate the currency, you're not going to get a hundred cents on the dollar. Uh, that would be that would be uh, a major issue in this campaign. Um, we need to have a stable currency that's going to give people the money they deserve for the time they work. Now, this currency situation, this monetary policy, is, a, is an issue in the current election cycle. We've seen Donald Trump say that, well, the United States really can't pay back its debt. And as Peter Schiff has pointed out, as I've said before, you know, maybe uh, these debt holders need a haircut. 
We can't, we can't, uh, we're broke. We can't afford to service the debt forever. It's going to come back to bite us. So essentially what Trump is saying is we need a, a, um, a balanced default, right? Uh, we need something, we need to do something to make sure that we can start paying our debt and get retire this debt much more effectively. Essentially, the United States is going to have a sovereign bankruptcy. Uh, and uh, Trump is actually pointing this out, whereas no other presidential candidate is, that we have a real financial crisis on the horizon. If we keep borrowing money like the United States is borrowing money, and you can't print your way out of it. I know Trump came out and said, well, the United States will never go default because we can just print money. I think what he's doing there is trying to alleviate fears because when people start saying default, when they start saying the United States is bankrupt, people need a haircut, et cetera, et cetera, uh, there is a real pushback for that from the financial community. And also, you know, people hear that and they think, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to us? Um, but you can't have free stuff forever. And I'll talk about William McKinley in a second in his first inaugural address because he says some pretty interesting things that, again, have currency. Of course, the gold Democrats were also against imperialism, uh, which, again, is a position that, that uh, you find in this particular campaign, not as much as you would if, say, someone like Ron Paul was running. But Donald Trump has generally p- taken a non-interventionist position in foreign policy. Um, you, some people would say it's confused, but his foreign policy is much preferable to Hillary Clinton's foreign policy, uh, which, again, is the same old globalist interventionism that the United States has long pursued. And the neoconservatives and the internationalists are going berserk over Trump's foreign policy. Now, my great fear with Trump, again, is that a lot of these neoconservatives now have come out and said, okay, we'll begrudgingly support Trump because they want positions in the government. They realize they're losing. And so what they're going to do, and this is the great fear with Trump, it happened during the Reagan administration, is that these neoconservatives infiltrated and they started directing American foreign policy and American domestic policy. So the best thing that could happen with Trump is he blocks these people. He really sees them as the enemy that they are, and he doesn't try to cozy up to them, particularly after the nomination is secure. He's going to have to get some of them to win the election, but I'm not certain how many of them. And, of course, they're still out there talking about another candidacy. Uh, Mitt Romney is out there making overtures to people. Hey, run. We need an establishment guy. And uh, a lot of the people are turning them down because they don't want Hillary Clinton to win the election. Now, whether Hillary Clinton even makes it to the election is is uncertain because of her legal problems, but we'll see. Uh, and, of course, uh, the corruption of the Clintons is front and center in the, in the 1890s with Grover Cleveland. In the 1880s and 1890s, Grover Cleveland ran on a position of platform of cleaning up corruption, and this was a major issue in the late 19th century. And we've all seen in the current general government corruption, whether it's crony capitalism, corruption, and the highest levels of government uh, you know, lawlessness, which is what you have in the Obama administration. So corruption is a real problem. And I think that's where people are also looking at someone like an outsider like Donald Trump to go in and clean up corruption. Now, whether Trump's going to do that or not, again, is unknown. But he is running on a position, hey, we're going to clean up corruption. Now, Trump's other issue is immigration. In the late 19th century, you had a real issue with immigration. Uh, one of the funniest episodes, I think, ironic episodes in the Cleveland administration as, as governor of New York, Grover Cleveland was opposed to the Statue of Liberty. He was not in favor of unlimited immigration into the United States. And you had people that were in favor of that in the late 19th century because they saw it as cheap labor and then eventually as votes. 
Uh, these people were going to vote, and there were going to be a perpetual voting class that would vote in whatever party, and it's generally the Democrat Party. But Cleveland was against this because he didn't think these people could assimilate into the American political system. They didn't share American values, and he saw them as dangerous. And a lot of people in the late 19th century saw unlimited immigration as a dangerous problem. You didn't know you couldn't trust these people to support American institutions. A lot of them were Marxists. A lot of them, of course, were uh, the worst of society. You weren't getting the best people from Europe uh, into the United States. You weren't, you weren't getting those people. You were getting people that were destitute, people that needed a job, and that's why they're here. Now, you can say, well, I mean, we're all for people coming over here and want to better their lives, and that's great. But um, you see this even with, with our 2016 immigration problem. You're not seeing the best people uh, of these countries coming to the United States. You're seeing the worst. And these other countries are freely saying, dump our problems into the United States. So what do we get? We get more crime. Uh, you get uh, depression of wages because the people that are working are driving down wages uh, that's what you have. I mean, it's, the, it's the iron law of wages. If you have more people for non-skilled jobs, wages are going to go down. Now, of course, we have a floor with a minimum wage, and I think you can make an argument against it. Um, and also in the United States, which we didn't have in the late 19th century, you have a vast social services network that's going to prop these people up. And as has been pointed out, people, immigrants, are getting more in social services than American citizens. Uh, so more is being spent on, on illegal or legal immigrants, oftentimes illegal, than even American citizens are getting in social services. So Americans essentially are paying people to come over here. And what's interesting, Europe is going through this too, and um, there are some countries, I think Sweden is one of them, that's starting to say, hey, we'll pay you to leave. Just get out. We don't want you here. Uh, and so this, this problem of immigration is going to be one of the major issues moving forward. And uh, how do you preserve traditional American culture when you are being, uh, I mean, when people are invading the U.S. and changing the, dyna the dynamics, the demographics, everything in these particular regions? It's not just on the border anymore in the Southwest. You have large numbers of resettlements in all kinds of states. Uh, the Obama administration is famous for doing this. And there was just a headline today that Obama is trying to get illegal immigrants summer jobs. right? So forget about you know people that are already here. We're going to get these Ill illegal immigrants summer jobs. Why? Because eventually we're going to make them legal and they're going to vote for the Democrats. And this is what, it's all about politics. So uh, this is why the Democrat Party tends to support immigration because they see them as millions of potential voters. And they're going to give them stuff. And this is what these people want. They're not, a lot of them aren't necessarily, I mean, there's some are. I mean, I would say, you know, a fair number are interested in bettering their life through hard work. But a lot of people are coming here because it's promised we're going to give you stuff, right? So come on over. We're going to give you things, education, health care, uh, you know, whatever you need that you're not getting where you are. And, uh, of course, one of the byproducts of this is disease. You're seeing large numbers of tuberculosis cases now, which have basically been eradicated in the United States. Uh, in Colorado, a couple of years ago, you had a, a virus that was going around that was causing paralysis, and this was coming from uh, large numbers of resettlements into Colorado. So uh, it's interesting how immigration is affecting not only jobs, but also public health. And this was a major issue again back in the 19th century. So people were talking about it. All right. Now, the Republicans nominated William McKinley, and a lot of conservative Democrats supported McKinley. In fact, McKinley 
was in some ways maybe the first guy to have a Republican to have a Southern strategy. And you saw this in the 1970s with Richard Nixon. Uh, He called it the silent majority. And in 1972, Nixon crushed uh, George McGovern because he had a strategy to win, and that involved getting the South to vote for him, uh, the conservative Southerners to vote for him. And the first time you saw that was really the 1896 campaign with William McKinley. He actually toured the South, and he promised that if he was elected president, he was going to have a pro-Southern policy. In other words, he was going to let the South have home rule for a number of issues, even though he had made statements uh, where he was against uh, some of the treatment of black Southerners, uh, which was a a good position to take. But um, he was essentially saying, look, we're going to heal the wounds of Reconstruction. We're going to get back to being a national party. Uh, We're going to favor traditional uh, traditional role of the general government in regard to the states and these type of things. So McKinley had a Southern strategy, and it's it's interesting. He toured the South. Um, he was for uh, for trying to bring the South back in under the fold of the general government, not being antagonistic. The first Republican really to do this uh, in in the history of the Republican Party. Um, you didn't really have that before. Um, now you might say Rutherford B. Hayes was interested in that position in 1877 because of what C. Van Woodward has called, called the Compromise of 1876. But, you know, McKinley, 20 years later, was really implementing this. Now, uh, when McKinley made his first inaugural address, and you look at what he says in this particular um, particular address, he's talking about, he spends a lot of time talking about credit and the economic crisis of the middle of the 19th, late uh, 19th century, uh, middle of the 1890s. And one of the things he says is particularly important. He says, quote, Economy is demanded in every branch of the government at all times, but especially in periods like the present of depression in business and distress among the people. The severest economy must be observed in all public expenditures and extravagance stopped whenever it is found and prevented wherever in the future it may be developed. If the revenues are to remain as now, the only relief that can that can come must be from decreased expenditures. So what he's saying is that the government, it's just like anything. You have revenue and you have expenditures. And if the economy is depressed, you've got to cut spending. You've got to cut spending. What we see now is when we have a depression, we increase spending. That's Keynesian economics 101. But McKinley is saying that's not how you rescue an an economy from a depression. You cut spending and uh, you try to live within your means. The United States doesn't have a revenue problem today. It has a spending problem. It has a spending problem. And I think that's something that the the adults in the room need to start recognizing. We got to cut spending and we got to cut spending in every area, not just domestic policy, but also foreign, you know, our, our defense as well. Uh, we can't afford the American empire. And so I think Trump has said this. I mean, he's realizing we can't afford the American empire. We've got bases in over 100 countries around the world. We're fighting expensive foreign wars. We really can't afford it. we got to let other countries do the heavy lifting. NATO is bankrupting us. We can't do it anymore. So everybody else has got to go out there and take care of themselves. And the United States is going to try to retrench a little bit and say, okay, we're not going to spend as much. Though he is saying we're going to continue to to make the United States military effective, we're not going to gut it. Uh, but 
perhaps uh, reining in our foreign adventurism would be a start in reining in domestic, uh, reining in spending on military uh, expenditures. Uh, he also, McKinley also says in 1897, this is after he's elected, of course, the government should not be permitted to run behind or increase its debt in times like the present. He says that a deficiency can only be met by loans or an increased revenue. While a large annual surplus of revenue may invite waste and extravagance, inadequate revenue creates distrust and undermines public and private credit. Neither should be encouraged. Between more loans and more revenue, there ought to be one opinion. We should have more revenue, and that without delay, hindrance, or postponement. A surplus in the Treasury created by loans is not a permanent or safe reliance. It will suffice while it lasts, but it cannot last long while the outlays of the government are greater than its receipts, as has been the case during the past two years. Nor must it be forgotten, he says, that however much such loans may temporarily relieve the, the situation, the government is still indebted for the amount of the surplus thus accrued, which it may must ultimately pay, while its ability to pay is not strengthened, but weakened by a continued deficit. So he's saying loans are okay if there's an emergency, but what we've had in the United States, I mean, essentially what we're running, if you, if you trace back our, our financial problem, it goes back to the New Deal. We've been running in an emergency situation, according to the Democrats, since 1932 and 33. Or you might say, uh, going back to the Hoover administration, he's the one that really was the architect of the New Deal. So going back to Herbert Hoover in 1929, we've been running in an emergency situation, according to the general government, by borrowing a lot of money and spending a lot of money. So that was a turning point. We've, we've never left a wartime emergency economy footing since the 1920s. I mean, almost for 100 years now. You can't do this forever. It's go- You're going to have to repay this money. And McKinley is saying here, you can only do it for a short term. So what McKinley wanted was more taxes. He wanted a higher tariff. Uh, McKinley was in favor of the 1890 McKinley tariff while he was in Congress. It was a high protective measure. Uh, and so he thought that that's the way to, re- to relieve the situation he wanted to cut spending, but he also wanted to increase taxes. And that's not a good idea when you have an economic downturn either. This is what Cleveland was saying. Um, so you are going to see a revision of the tariff in, in the 1890s. The tariff is going to go up. And, of course, manufacturers like this because it uh, helped them. It also helped American workers who were working in manufacturing, but it helped them. Uh, now, he also mentions... Um, Immigration. McKinley says this, which is pretty interesting. Quote, our naturalization and immigration laws should be further improved to the constant promotion of a safer, a better, and a higher citizenship. A grave peril to the republic would be a citizenship too ignorant to understand or too vicious to appreciate the great value and benefits of our institutions and laws. And against all who come here, to make war upon them, our gates must be promptly and tightly closed. So he's saying, look, we're fine with immigration, but if these people are against us, if they're dangerous and they won't assimilate, we don't need to have them here. And I think that's essentially what Trump is saying as well. This is what the, this has long been an American conservative position. Even Jefferson, I mean, 
who's pro-immigration, he wouldn't have agreed with an immigration policy that's going to hurt the United States by allowing people into the United States that aren't going to be beneficial to the United States. So uh, this is, this is. I mean, what Trump is saying in 2016 is nothing new. In fact, there was just a video the other day where uh, they had a, a speech from Bill Clinton in 1996 saying the exact same thing, essentially, that Trump is saying in 2016. So when you look at the 1896 election, and you have this conservative William McKinley, um, though his foreign policy is going to be imperialistic. Not McKinley wasn't as much of an imperialist as, say, the, the Jingos in his own party, but he would go along with it. And, of course, we're going to get the Spanish-American War out of that, and that's going to create a disaster for the future in American foreign policy. You had Republicans who were definitely interventionists and internationalists in the 1890s. Um, John Hay, who was a Secretary of State, uh, so you had uh, this, this particular position, but McKinley is saying some things in 1896 that resonated throughout the entire United States. You had a conservative splinter party that didn't get a whole lot of votes, but it was still evidence that the conservative Jeffersonian Democrats, this uh, you know gold standard, non-intervention, limited government position was still out there. And then you had Bryan, uh, who was essentially the agrarian candidate, and you had a lot of agrarians who would support him. And this was very traditional in their own mind because they're trying to conserve this traditional American economy. Now, progressivism, in some ways, people have thought had been beaten back. Uh, even in the 1890s, they thought it had been beaten back. You know, Brian lost. And so uh, it was thought that conservatives were running the show and uh, the progressive agenda was not necessarily going to win of course, what we see in 1901 when William McKinley is assassinated and Teddy Roosevelt becomes president, the progressive agenda comes back full force and it's never really stopped. Um, so this is the last gasp in so many ways of uh, you know real Cleveland-influenced conservatism in the general government. Now, you could say maybe Calvin Coolidge uh, brought it back in the 1920s. Uh, but you, that's that's a brief interruption in the march of progressivism that we've gotten here to in 2016. I mean, Barack Obama is a natural extension of what has happened over the last hundred years in the executive branch. As I point out in my book, nine presidents who screwed up America and four tried to save her. Uh, so Cleveland's in that because four tried to save her. So is Coolidge. Uh, but you know, Obama, of course, is one of the bad ones, and so is Teddy Roosevelt. So is. Woodrow Wilson, so is Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, you know, on down the line. Uh, so you, you have to uh, you have to look at this turning point, 1901, uh, as really you know as as McKinley is killed and then Roosevelt becomes president. That's really a turning point in American history. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this little history lesson, uh, and I uh, hope you'll join me next time for the Brian McClanahan Show. Until then, I'll I'll see you then. <laughs>